0: If you've been listening to the Business of Biotech podcast for a while now, you'll recall that Erin Harris has joined me to co-host a few episodes. Erin's my friend, colleague, and chief editor over at SelenGene.com, and she just recently launched a podcast of her own. It's aptly named Gene the podcast. And if you're working in the Gene space, you should give it a listen. It's a collection of interviews with the industry and academic leaders moving the space forward, and you can find it at SelenGene.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Selling Gene, the podcast. Check it out. This is the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller, and I'm about to get out of my depth and into yours with Dr. Gene Lee, VP of Technical Development at AltruBio. After earning his B.S. in biology from Carnegie Mellon, Dr. Lee was awarded a Ph.D. in microbiology from New York University, and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Harvard Medical School. He built a biotech career on that platform, serving as principal research scientists at uh, Genetics Institute and in Wyeth, director of cell line development at Persivia and Senior Director and Global Head of Protein and Cell Sciences and U.S. Site Head, uh, Discovery and Development Technologies at EMD Serono before joining AltruBio in April 2021. Today, we're talking about CMC developability assessments and more specifically, how leveraging them during the discovery phase of novel biologics speeds up entry into phase one. But first, let's get to know Dr. Lee a little bit better. Uh, Dr. Lee, hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I'm thrilled you could be here. And as I said, I'm out of my depth, so I'll lean heavily into your uh, expertise <laughs> uh, as we uh, pursue these questions, but I'm looking forward to learning a lot today. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to I wanna spend a little bit of time learning a little bit of more, uh, more about you. Um, you made this this transition from academia to industry relatively early in your career. Uh, what was the motivation for the application of your biology training to drug development?
1: Well, it, it might come off as a little bit corny, but I've always wanted to help people. Uh, you know, I've mean, i always wanted to do something that would have an impact on people and more specifically patient health. Um, I knew I wanted to be a scientist from when I was um pretty young. My dad was a biochemist and I spent a lot of time uh, as a kid just hanging out in his lab. Um, And because my dad was in academia, he was a scientist, I had always imagined that I would follow in his footsteps and and work in an academic lab as well. Um, And and I was always sort of um, gravitated, gravitating towards those laboratories that were working on, you know, the way that the body protects against diseases, you know, So um, the way the body keeps itself healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I worked in laboratories uh, and on topics that were really related to host cell immunity. So as a PhD student, I worked on um, interferon and tumor necrosis factors. So these are um, cytokines which are involved in, in immunity. And as a postdoc, I worked on um, aspects of, of the immune system as well. Um, but I never really felt um, terribly satisfied working in an academic setting. I just didn't feel like uh, my work was having the kind of impact that it, that I was looking for, and so I began looking at uh, opportunities in industry. Now, this was sort of in the late '90s when I was finishing up my postdoc, and I, w- I would say at that time the the biotech industry was still pretty young. Not not a whole lot of companies. Certainly not the kind of um, ecosystem that you know you and I live in today. Um, and so I wasn't, well, let's put it this way. I was very naive about the, the opportunities, uh, which were, um, available to a scientist who wanted to, uh, work in industry. Um, fortunately I did my postdoc, as you said, uh, at Harvard Medical School. So in the Boston, Cambridge area, um, and there were a few companies, a few young companies that were uh, beginning to emerge. And long story short, I found myself, um, at Genetics Institute, very lucky uh, to do so, um, in an organization uh, that was really focused on development. Mm -hmm. Um, There I was able to just kind of use the skills that I'd learned as a a, a PhD student and as a postdoc um, to really apply um, uh, sort of the the basic fundamental um, science to bringing drugs to market. And, you know, I think something there clicked, you know, this is the way that I could have the biggest impact uh, in applying what I know and what I love uh, to, to really helping people. Yeah. The rest is history.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it seems uh, it seems apropos that you end up at a company called AltruBio, uh, <laughs> given your altruistic intent. So another transition that's uh, noteworthy looking at your – uh, your CV is the transition from from big bio to emerging biotech. So EMD Serono is you know, is a, you know pr- pretty good sized company. Uh, the transition to ultra Bio, uh, being a clinical stage company. What what was the motivation for that move?
1: Yeah, so I've been in the industry for well over twenty years now, um, and in the end, I wanted to do even more uh, to really help bring drugs to people who need them. It was a hard. Move to make. It was a tough leap to make from EMG Serono to join UltraBio. I had a really successful career there. Um, As you mentioned, I was a global head of a department uh, that was uh, bringing drugs into the clinic. Um, I was a site head and really um, able to stretch uh, my knowledge and my experience uh, into fields which uh, were a little bit less familiar to me uh, and interacting with a lot of people, uh, a lot of really brilliant scientists. but it was a larger organization. And um, so as such, um, a lot of the decisions that needed to be made had to go through several layers of governance and and committees. Uh, We often had to make very tough decisions about which asset to move forward, which asset to kill, because obviously um, we we didn't have an unlimited budget to move everything forward. Uh, And that's tough, right? You work on a project for for years, only to have it killed because it's um, decided that it's, it's less interesting than, than another molecule uh, that the organization might be working on. I think at UltraBio, um, given, given its size and its really intense focus, uh, I really have the opportunity, or I feel like I had the opportunity to uh, more directly link uh, the science to um, bringing meaningful drugs uh, to patients and, you know, really linking the the science to, uh, strategic decisions, uh, moving things that, that we think make sense forward. So cool. I mean, it really goes back to my, my, uh, you know, initial motivations of wanting to help people. I think at UltraBio and a small company like UltraBio, um, I just have the chance to make more meaningful and impactful, uh, decisions every day. I, I should add as well that, um, Joining UltraBio was made a little bit easier because um, I know Judy uh, from my days at Wyeth Pharma. We were we were colleagues. uh boy, I, I guess twenty years ago, uh, working at, uh, working up in Andover, Massachusetts, and uh, I think the opportunity to work with her again was uh, the clincher. Uh,
0: yeah did you did you say did you say twenty years ago? Yeah, I think it was about twenty years ago. Uh, you guys, uh, you, you and Judy, <laughs> you, you and Judy are both aging very well. Uh, <laughs> it, it helps though when you make transitions like that to have the confidence in a in a in someone like Judy, you know, someone uh, like Dr. Chow who you've you've worked with before and been able to develop that uh, that that confidence in her ability to lead. I I totally get that. I've made uh, similar career choices where I find myself back with. People that uh, you know were 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 great uh, leaders and good to work with in the first place. So very nice. I want to uh, I want to start transitioning into this more technical conversation around developability assessments, um, but I want to start at a, a bit of a higher level. Uh, g- given that uh, Ultra Bio is a clinical stage company, um, b- before we get specifically to CMC developability assessments, I want to discuss phase one and just how important a milestone that is to uh, emerging biopharma companies, um, and the obstacles that, that, uh, that, that that companies face getting there. Uh, and, and that, um, you know, developability I'm sure, I'm sure is one. So, uh, what are the, you know, when you look at, at the, I guess the, the obstacles, the challenges that, uh, that, that a company faces as it prepares for leads up to phase one, what, what, what kind of concerns you the most?
1: Yeah, I, it's a really great question matt and i think obviously that the answer is multidimensional. right so to get a a drug successfully into phase one um you have to look at clearly the science behind the concept it has to be solid um and there has to be a business case uh, for doing it as well it's a it's a big investment for any company to go into phase one so is your molecule um going to be competitive is it differentiated enough from Other molecules, which are either already in the clinic or uh, in in the preclinical stages of development, Um, but you're talking to a CMC guy, so I look at um, phase one readiness, you know, through the lens of CMC developability. And so that's a technical aspect then, uh, which is a little bit distinct from uh, the sort of core science and and the uh, scientific rationale for bringing the molecule forward.
0: Um, so to Define that That's that's a, that's a beautiful segue. Define that for us. What, what's uh d- define CMC developability for those folks who aren't necessarily coming at it from a, a technical perspective. Like sure. you.
1: Um, I guess in a nutshell, you could sum it up by saying, you know, can you make the damn thing? So, okay. Yeah. Right. You know, you might have a great idea, a brilliant idea of how to uh, cure a disease. Um, you're going to make an antibody that targets something on um, a tumor cell or a T cell, let's just say. Um, And um, you know that by doing that, you're going to affect the biology uh, of the disease in a way that that you you think has a a good chance of um, treating the disease. Well, so then you have to start thinking about what will that molecule look like? How do you design that molecule? And, and really, that's the first step in developability. It really starts at concept generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about the molecule, um, almost like you know, thinking about building um, a car. So if you're working at Tesla, for example, and you wanna build a, a brand new car, you know, what are the design elements there uh, that will lead to a, sex, a successful product uh, in the end? Um, so once you have that design, you um, often then need to prototype you know you build several versions uh, of those early designs see if they work put them out on the racetrack uh, see what kind of range it has you know this sort of thing Um, and not all designs are going to work well uh, for whatever reason you know you might have a great idea about what the the molecule should look like or what the car should look like and it just doesn't work uh, for whatever reason Um, and you know even if the the concept is great the the you've picked the right target. It's a disease that has an unmet need. If you can't make the molecule, if you can't manufacture it, it's just not going to go anywhere. And um, in my experience, um, it's better to think about those things early before you've really invested too much time, too much energy into a project um, to only find out that, that you can't make it. Um, you know, that, that's expensive. It's heartbreaking. I mentioned to you, you know, at, at a larger organization, you, you often have to make those choices. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those choices are because of CMC considerations. Um, the molecule just isn't um, able to be made you know, either at all, and that's rare, um, or made efficiently. Um, and that's also an important factor because, you know, a molecule which you can just kind of barely squeak out in a, in a manufacturing setting is likely going to be expensive, um, to, to make, it's going to have a long development, uh, program. Um, and those costs inevitably, um, get passed on to, to the patient, uh, and and to payers. And, you know, I think we, we're all very aware of the sort of, uh, rising costs of, of, of drug care.
0: Yeah. Uh, how early, so we're talking about, uh, we're, we're talking about executing these developability assessments early right mm. discovery phase, but it occurs to me that there may be a too early right and might you know there there may be a point in the discovery phase that's uh, just just too early to to um to assess the developability because maybe you know maybe we haven't i don't know progressed that far. and and, uh, and, and if we kill it too early' we'll, we'll you know we'll make a mistake that we regret and maybe never know we made a mistake right yeah. so so, so I guess you know, I'll, I'll simplify back to the, the the simple question. How early is yeah. too early?
1: I get the question. Um, and I think it can be addressed um, by thinking of developability uh, perhaps in uh, in a phased approach, right? So um, in my opinion, there isn't a too early. Um, okay. There might be uh, investing too much too early. Um, component of your question, so you know you certainly wouldn't want to throw uh, the kitchen sink, uh, the sort of the mother of all developability assessments, um, at the earliest stage of uh, your discovery efforts, because you also don't want to um, squash innovation uh, or ingenuity uh, very early on. You want to give those ideas a chance to breathe, you know, a chance to really see um, what what they can do from a functional perspective. Um, in in your discovery laboratories. Uh Um, And so an early developability assessment might be um, essentially just um, prototyping a large number of potential designs and just dropping the ones that are uh, less promising than others. So you're not killing the program, you're just sort of putting aside, perhaps for now, those designs which are less developable than others, but you keep the program moving. Later on, as the the program uh, matures and and you're beginning to um, gain uh, a little bit of momentum and steam, then you can begin applying uh, a more mature, uh, more, um, let's say, process-relevant assessment. Some people call this a manufacturability assessment. In this case, you're really prototyping the molecule um, in in a process which resembles what you will use on the manufacturing floor so it's really a good predictor uh, then of how your molecule will behave in a manufacturing setting you know going back to the tesla analogy you know you can do the early assessments uh, maybe in your garage you know that's an early kind of assessment but at at some point you're going to want to put it out on the racetrack uh, to see how it runs and uh, you know have it circle the track you know, all day to see how you know, reliable it is and, and how durable it is, um, and that sort of later assessment is is not something you want to do early on before you've had a, a chance to you know really flesh out the ideas.
0: Sure, are those um are, are those assessments uh are are they fairly standardized? Are they proprietary approaches? You know, from company to company, um, is there a is there a framework? Is there guidance?
1: They are pretty standardized. And I, I think that comes from um, the fact that uh, you know when we're talking about biologics, uh, by and large, over the past uh, 10, 15, uh, maybe 20 years, uh, when you say biologics, you mean monoclonal antibodies. Mm-hmm. So that's a very standard sort of molecular structure. Uh, and with that comes a standard way of manufacturing them, of processing them. Um, And so too, you know, with developability assessments, you you can um, evaluate monoclonal antibodies in what we call a platform uh, process, see how well they are expressed uh, in a recombinant cell line, um, see how well they behave. So some antibodies have um, a tendency to clump together, aggregate, um, and those, generally speaking, um, will not be developable in the long run, Um, but you can assess that pretty early on. Um, and um, it is predictive then of developability and manufacturability uh, issues later. Now, I will say that over the last uh, several years, there's been um, increased interest um, in other kinds of uh, molecules. So not monoclonal antibodies, but things like bispecific antibodies or FC fusion proteins. These are a little bit more complex
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, than, than you know your standard antibody. And they have, I I would say, by and large, uh, a greater chance of not being developable. Mm. And you really have to look at it early on to make sure that you're not, you know, placing all your bets on something that, you know, just you can't you can't make it in the end.
0: The business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Sytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A LifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. so on the flip side of that uh, you, you know you, you pointed out a couple of things that might point to a lack of developability um, what are you looking for in the assessment that bode well for developability
1: yeah um, high expression level is kind of the cure for a lot of ills so if you can express your molecule uh, you know at a very high level in in your process um, you can have a, a crappy purification process and you're still going to be okay because you'll have enough material in the end. So, you know, I would say that's the number one thing. The other thing, again, is the aggregation uh, of the, the molecule, but the clumpy clumpiness mm-hmm. uh, of the molecule. Um, that also is a good predictor of how it will behave um, in purification and formulation. Um, you know, I think there's a, a product quality aspect to that as well. I would say if you can look at those two things um, early on, you're in good shape. Obviously, there are some other uh, quality attributes that you want to take a look at as well. Uh, But these fall into the very sort of standard analytical methods uh, that that companies who are working on biologics will utilize uh, every day anyway.
0: Okay what uh, what resources are required to execute or conduct a developability assessment? I want to I still want to kind of get my mind around like what what that looks like in practice uh, in the day-to-day operations of the company. So we're looking at a discovery phase developability yeah. assessment as discovery is going on, you know is, is, is Dr. Lee and his team uh, toiling away in a lab, you know executing a developability assessment on its own and reporting back to the team or does everything pause? While these assessments are happening, uh, give me give me a better idea how that how that plays out.
1: Most discovery laboratories will have uh, some kind of protein expression group. You need that kind of group in order to supply material to all the research teams uh, to do all their preclinical studies, their animal studies, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, um, the the protein that's being supplied should be of let's say, sufficient quality. You, know, you don't want to provide the teams with uh, material where you'll have questions You know, about the the data uh, and the results. So laboratories which are equipped to do uh, this sort of early protein supply, early research uh, supply, I would say are already pretty well equipped to do a developability assessment. You know, they're the first set of eyes on how the molecule expresses they will have to purify the molecule and so they will also um, begin to gain experience about how the protein behaves. Is it aggregating? Uh, does it tend to fall out of solution under different salt conditions? Um, they will run analytical uh, assays to uh, look at the quality of, of the molecule that they're sharing you know, with their research teams and so they will see you know, what is the percent monomer you know, on a size exclusion chromatic Uh, chromatograph uh, for example so these labs are already well equipped to do these early developability assessments now i think that uh, to do it really well um, the the sort of early research labs should have uh, an understanding at least of what the manufacturing process looks like and that can either be through Uh, Interactions and conversations with an internal uh, manufacturing and and development organization. Of course, this is uh, really true only in in larger companies that that have that internal uh, capability. Um, Or it can come through the experience of uh, the scientists and and the leadership uh, in a smaller organization who are really much more uh, attuned to what the needs in development and manufacturing are. Um, I mentioned to you that. it's it's a good idea to check the developability or manufacturability in the context of the, the manufacturing platform. So this is racing the Tesla on the racetrack. Uh, yeah. So having that conversation with either your internal manufacturing group or you know if if need be with an external uh, CDMO about what their platform looks like um, will be a big help because then you can test your molecule in the in the context of whatever that platform is. And it just gives you greater confidence that once the research team is ready to hand over their project over to manufacturing, they'll be able to just, just to run. Um, and, you know, fact of the matter is, at that point, you know, once you've decided to manufacture, um, the clock is ticking. You know, you're really sort of on the path to IND. Um, you don't want there to be any delays uh, in moving that, that product forward. Uh, you want to spend as little time in process development. Uh, to get into phase one um, at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. Does the molecule ever, the, so the the developability assessment of the molecule, does that ever inform the manufacturing process or platform, or is it always the other way around? The way that you describe it, Dr. Lee, it's, it kind of sounds like, you know, we have to make sure that we can develop this molecule within the parameters or the guardrails of the platform with which we, you know, we're subscribing to to manufacture, whether whether it's internal or or with an outsourced partner, does it ever kind of work the other way where you go, look, like we think this thing is developable. Uh, we, we we've done the assessment. We think there's a there's a there's an opportunity here, but it's going to require some maybe heavy lifting or re, you know reworking of our manufacturing capacity.
1: What you're describing, I think, is what the state of the industry was when I first started so when okay. I started at Genetics Institute. You know, monoclonal antibodies, you know, really weren't um, on the on the big stage yet Uh, platform processes didn't really exist so at that time uh, companies like genetics institute like amgen like genentech um, were really working on uh, replacement factors so we were working on on blood clotting factors like factor eight factor nine um, you know uh, epo insulin you know these are the kind of molecules that um, the early biotech companies uh, were, were working on and each of those molecules just, you know, they behave differently. They're, there's, there's nothing similar uh, from one to the other. And so, um, if you wanted to bring those kind of molecules into the clinic, you'd have to completely develop, you know, your your process from scratch in order to handle uh, the uh, the sort of unique properties of each of those molecules. So, you know, that that was kind of the the paradigm back then. Um, when the the industry really shifted to uh, monoclonal antibodies, and today, you know, you've probably seen all the uh, the data about you know what the top twenty biotech products are, uh, you know, and it's it's largely dominated by monoclonal antibodies. Why? Because they're very uh, similar to one another, and it's easy to set up a platform process. A platform process meaning, you know, it it should fit in the same kind of. Uh, cell culture uh, system it should fit in the same kind of purification system one molecule to the next and so you can really develop a portfolio uh, around monoclonal antibodies to move a lot of different uh, products into the clinic and then once that started happening um, people really started to look at uh, process efficiencies and facility utilization how can we you know move these molecules into the clinic um, faster and faster beat the competition lower the cost of goods, you know lower the overall cost of manufacturing. And, and so now that mindset has um, dominated uh, the thinking in the industry. Now we're seeing a shift away from monoclonal antibodies, as I mentioned, um, yeah. FC fusion proteins and immunocytokines, things like this. And while they do share a certain similarity to antibodies, um, they're also quite different um, not only from an antibody but also from each other. And there is a tendency, I think, still to try to make them fit in the antibody platform. I mean, by God, we've spent so much money in investing in a facility to handle uh, an antibody process. Might as well, you know, find a molecule that'll fit that. Yeah. Uh, But sometimes it's just not possible. Uh, You know, you have a really um, great idea. You've built a great molecule, and you know, as as you say, Matt, you know we we think we can develop a process around this we just don't have that process yet and so um in those situations then i think um there has to be a conversation with the development and development and manufacturing organizations uh to see what the best strategy moving forward is
0: yeah excellent um What's the, so, and that, 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 I was, I was, I was going to lead into that question. Like what you mentioned, you know, the, the monoclonal early days of, 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 maps. When I asked that very naive question about being able to fit the, you know, the molecule to, uh, to a new manufacturing process, um, I, I was curious if we were in those kind of early wild west days as it relates to FC fusions and, and by antibodies and so on. So thank, thanks for getting ahead of that one for me. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the way that you transfer knowledge. You know, the the the, the transfer of knowledge uh, taken from a developability assessment um, to make sure that that data is is transferred effectively, and um, you know, perhaps even informs uh, process decision making and scallop and and so on. Does it, yeah. um, it? Are are there like formal systems in place for that transfer of knowledge?
1: Probably for some organizations, the answer is yes, and that's probably more likely in uh, organizations that that can support both a, a discovery uh, research organization and uh, in internal manufacturing, right? Because then you have um, a very clear path of communication, you know, from one side to the other, and I think that's critical. So, obviously, you want to transfer information from from discovery research to development, you know, this is the molecule we're working on. We're, we're handing over that uh, molecule and all the knowledge that we've gained um, over to you guys uh, to develop a process. But there also needs to be the uh, communication and transfer of knowledge backwards as well. So the, the process development folk um, can uh, develop a, a um, you know, very robust platform um, for, um, making recombinant molecules, for purifying the molecules, and they can um, transfer that that knowledge back to the research team so that they can evaluate the molecules in that context. I think that's that's important. Um, I'm not sure that that exists all the time with every every organization that I've come across, but I think, um, you know, really the, the best ones uh, try to integrate uh, those two teams uh, in some sort of CMC developability kind of uh, sub-team. Now for smaller organizations that don't have internal uh, manufacturing capabilities, um, obviously they will need to outsource uh, those activities to the CDMO. Uh, but then there again, I think there are uh, opportunities for knowledgeable CMC experts from both sides um, to really um, take a look at the overall package uh, before the formal execution uh, of a project to really anticipate you know, what the challenges might be um, what the what we think might be the best best path forward um whether a platform process could be implemented um uh-huh. you know likely that's going to be the 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 cheapest and and often the quickest way uh to the clinic um and if we have to deviate from the platform you know what are the the best options uh, to consider um i guess in a nutshell you know it really comes down to communication uh in both
0: directions yeah okay um what, what haven't I? What, what haven't I asked you about uh, develop, you know, CMC developability assessments that that uh, that I should have? As yeah. I said, I, I, I'm I'm the first guy to admit that I'm stepping into this conversation going. I don't even know really what that means, so I'm hoping to learn from from Doctor Lee. Um, so, so help me out here. What 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 should I have asked you uh, if you're if you're coming at it from the perspective of a uh, uh, the the leader, you know, tech tech leader of a right. of an emerging biopharma.
1: Well, Matt, you wouldn't be the first person to tell me that they don't understand developability, <laughs> and I think actually that's part of the the problem, the issue. So, um, you know, I worked in a in a discovery organization. I've also worked in a development organization, uh, but in discovery, I think the focus is really mostly around functionality of the molecule, right? So, what is the binding affinity? What what does the target engagement look like for that antibody? Um, and CMC is is usually either you know, a secondary consideration or they haven't even heard about you know, what CMC is. Um, but I think it's important to really take a holistic approach um, to developing a drug, to designing a drug, and you really need to take the time. So my advice uh, really to uh, primarily to discovery organizations would be to take the time to do a proper developability assessment because not doing it, Um, will often lead to spectacular failures in the end. Uh, A molecule which looks great on paper, maybe works great in the laboratory, but you can't make it. And so the project is dead. Um, And that's, I think, the absolute worst outcome for a a discovery organization, particularly for a a smaller organization that might be um, really banking a lot on the success uh, or failure of that molecule uh, in the clinic. Uh, You want to be able to at least get to the stage where you can demonstrate proof of concept in the clinic. Um, but to do that, you have to make the damn thing. So take the time uh, to do a proper developability assessment.
0: Yeah. I, I like it. Um, so I want to, be, before we wrap up here, I just want to point out that, uh, not too long ago, uh, just a, a couple episodes before this, I, uh, interviewed, uh, your, your, I presume she's your boss, your uh, uh, CEO, Dr. Judy Chow at AltruBio. If I, br- I bring that up, because if if folks uh, among our listenership are interested in learning more about the company, the pipeline that you're actually exercising these developability assessment chops on the actual pipeline, uh, listen to that episode. I don't, it's not even numbered yet because it hasn't been released. But uh, look for look for Dr. Judy Chow in that episode, and you'll learn more about. The work that Altru Bio is doing—it's important work and, and diverse. Um, so, I—I I, uh, I congratulate you on the successes you've seen and, and the work you're doing. And I'm super honored that you were able to join us, Doctor Leanne. Yeah, thank thank you, you for your time. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I hope so. I hope so. I—you uh, know—I'm not afraid to ask naive questions, and, and I think that's—I think that's why people like to tune into this podcast. They're like, "Well, let's listen to that guy who asks naive questions uh, because they yield." Transparent responses, right? And I appreciate you for that.
1: Yeah, no, it was fun. And uh, yeah, hopefully I was able to um, explain things in a way that that you and the uh, audience can understand.
0: For sure. I, I feel smarter. So thank you. <laughs> so that's Ultra Bio VP of Technical Development, Dr. Gene Lee. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. If you're not already subscribed to my newsletter, please visit me at bioprocessonline.com and sign up for it. And check out Cytiva's biotech accelerator at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech, where you'll find a host of resources to aid you on your journey. Finally, if you're benefiting from the conversations you're hearing on the business of biotech, please hit that subscribe button and give us a five-star review. In the meantime, thanks for listening.